I have absolutely no doubt that on a day like today, being it is the Lord's day, I as well as you do have the opportunity and privilege of being in amongst the most gifted people of all the world. You think about those who are gifted, and sometimes we think about doctors, for example. We say that when it comes to medical things, they have medically gifted hands. A surgeon might be said of him in that way. You think about the amazing things that mankind, because of the medical field, has been able to accomplish and do. The way that we have been able to, in some senses, extend lives at times and allow people to have more days. That is an amazing thing, a gift that we are thankful that God even allowed mankind to discover. I think about sometimes those I have encountered who seemingly are gifted when it comes to mathematics. My son, six-year-old Cameron, is mathematically gifted. We've not spent any time at home, for example, teaching him to add and subtract. Matter of fact, when we go into a restaurant and I try to leave a tip, I have to still count on my fingers. He doesn't do that. He looks at mathematical equations on a page. He knows exactly the answer. He says it right off. Doesn't have any difficulty. I'm not that way. But he's gifted in that particular area. I think about those who are gifted in the sciences. They have the ability to study the sciences, things that are around them, about this universe and about this world sometimes. And they have a way of comprehending those things, sometimes even relaying those things that allow us to know they're gifted in that area. I've met with people who are artistically gifted, whether it be through drawing or painting or some other medium. They have the ability to take what is before us, things in nature, even sometimes the human face, and to put that upon paper, upon a canvas, and make it look so realistic, make it look so beautiful that you and I are attracted to the viewing of it. They're gifted in that area. I've met with those at times who are not so artistic as it is that they themselves seemingly are musically talented. Whether it be the human voice or a musical instrument, they have the ability to put notes, put things together that allow us to find peace and to find relaxation even and enjoyment in listening to those musical scores. Again, these are gifted people. I've met people, and perhaps some of you are like this. You're gifted in the culinary arts. Now, we don't talk that way really around Weaver, Alabama, but that says that you're a good cook. My mother, for example, she is a great cook, and she can put things together in a frying pan that make you wish you could slap her, although I never would, as we say. But she's gifted in that area. And all in all, we could go. We've met people who sometimes have the gift of gab. They're able to talk, they're able to speak to anyone in any situation, any time, about any subject. And we would say they're gifted. But I don't know about you, none of you may be gifted medically or musically or artistically or in any of those areas. You may not be gifted in those areas. But I am confident that every time I stand in the midst of any group of the Lord's people on the Lord's day, I'm meeting with people who are spiritually gifted. People who by some means, and do not misunderstand me, are supernaturally gifted. That's not miraculous to say that. That just simply says that God has endowed us as Christians to have certain gifts, certain talents, certain abilities that we're able to use to expand His cause and to grow as His children. Now with that in mind, I want to lead you this morning in discovering your spiritual gift. You have one. You may not be aware of it. You may not be willing to admit it, but you have a spiritual gift. 
you have your Bibles, I hope you'll open them with me. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is a place when we're going to get into it a little bit later when the Apostle Paul, writing by inspiration, makes mention of some of those spiritual gifts that exist. As a matter of fact, Paul gives us a listing of seven spiritual gifts that exist here, at least the way he delivers it to the Romans. When he spoke to the Corinthians, he gave them a, a somewhat different and even more lengthy list. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all of these things are gifts, abilities, talents that we have access to. But the first thing I want you to notice with me is that we do have some spiritual gift. Just focus on a phrase or two from verse 6. Romans chapter 12 and verse 6. The Bible says here, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Now you can note right there the very last word. Paul doesn't say having a gift according to the grace that is the grace of God that is given to me. Now certainly Paul was a gifted man. Certainly Paul is a man who was intelligent as he is and was, as, as said in many areas, was so intelligent, so adept at delivering God's word. As an apostle even of our Lord, certainly he was a gifted individual. But he says the gifts he's given unto us. The implication there is that those to whom he is writing, which by the way you'll well know, is the church at Rome, and this could apply to any congregation of the Lord's people, are filled with those who have gifts. But how do we discover those gifts? Go all the way back up. And I believe I'm a preacher of context. I believe that any time we read something like that, a phrase from verse 6, we ought to first read what is said preceding it, maybe even following it, so that we can understand it. Notice with me verse 1 of Romans chapter 12. Here the Bible records and says, And I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now we're going to continue on through verse 8 here in the next few moments, but I only want to focus your attention now there in verse 1. Because under the heading of discovering our spiritual gift, there are several things that are going to have to be done before we even get to the listing of gifts, which, by the way, are mentioned there in verses 6, 7, and 8. But before we get to that, there are several things that are going to have to be done in order to prepare our minds for the discovering of that gift. And the first one's here in verse 1. And that is, in order to discover your spiritual gift, there must be, there must be on every occasion, a sacrificial presentation. Now the wording's right there. He says present. That is presentation. Your body's what? A living sacrifice. Now you'll notice as it is verse 1 coming before verses 6, 7, and 8, these things precede them and that's not by accident. I have, I suppose, at least I try to have a great respect for God's Word. And I try to respect God's Word not only for every word that it says, but even for the ordering of those words. And I understand that when God says something, as we have been divided here in verse 1, that He's saying that to allow us to open our minds for what He might say in verse 2 or 3 or 4 or 5, 6, 7 or 8. And so I believe this ought to precede the discovering of that spiritual gift, that sacrificial presentation. Now, several things I want to mention to you from just this first verse and that is, first of all, I want to notice with you the cause of this. 
Why is God calling upon us to have a sacrificial, if you will, presentation? Why is He calling upon us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice? Well, the cause is mentioned. He said, I beseech you, literally word there means to beg. I beg you, therefore, brethren, watch it, by the mercies of God. That's the cause. God is asking you, He's asking me, for that matter, He's asking every man, woman, a boy, girl, who would ever live, to present themselves as a living sacrifice because He has already presented His. He's been merciful. It's certainly the case that when I review my life, and especially the times in my life when I found myself to be in the midst of or in the habit of, of committing sin, I think about the mercy of God. I think about how His Son died for us. Not just for me and not just for you, but for every man and woman who would ever step upon the face of the earth. The ones who are the most evil, the ones who are the most sinful, the ones who commit the most terrible acts, even by man's standards, sinful things, God sent His Son to die for all of them. Friends, that shows His mercy. You know, oftentimes we say about ourselves, I just want to be justified before God. Well, that's true. I'd like to be justified before God. I would like God to look down and see what I'm able to do in life that I do because of and according to His Word and say, you've done just as I've told you to do. You, you've committed these things. You've committed the acts and, and the practices that I would have you do. I want to have that. But what I want more than that, and I need more than that, is mercy. I need God to be willing to look down from heaven and say, Jim Merle, or you insert your name, is not a perfect individual. They're not sinlessly perfect, but they have obeyed my will. They are following my word. They are doing what they can. And so because of that, I'm going to allow them to have mercy. And that mercy began at the cross. And so for God to beseech or beg us, and he's the writer behind the pen of Paul here, for God to beg of us to be that living sacrifice, there is a cause. And the cause is because of God's mercy. But not only do I think about this and know that there is a cause, friends, I realize there must be a commencement. I cannot just continually repeat, and I need to keep this in my mind, don't get me wrong, but I can't continue to say to myself, God died for me, God died for me, His Son died for me. And it mean anything. I can't continue to read passages such as Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 and say, here it is, I need to present myself a living sacrifice and never do anything with it and ever do any good. We've been talking for several weeks, really, from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, about those who say that they have faith, who say that they know things about God and about His Word, but do nothing with it. It does no good here. It would not do anything if I were to be able to stand today even before the face of God and in some senses through prayer I can and do to stand before God and say, God, I'm going to commit myself to being a living sacrifice for you and then not ever actually do anything. There has to be a commencement. And when we think about this sacrifice, the Bible specifically there, the wording says it is a living sacrifice. Sacrifice. What does that mean? It's in direct opposition to the Old Testament sacrifices that were dead. Every single time an Old Testament sacrifice was made for any purpose, especially on the Day of Atonement, to have sins to be rolled forward, every time an animal was brought in, a firstling of the flock, a goat, whatever it was, was laying upon an altar there. Its throat was slit. The blood was poured out. The altar was then set on fire. 
It was a dead sacrifice though. Friends, we're to be living sacrifices. And if you want to put it in more easy to understand terms, we have to start somewhere doing that. I have to start. But once I notice the cause, that is the mercies of God, I then think about the commencement. I have to start or begin. I have a starting point for my sacrifice. I have to also have a consummation. Now that's a little bit bigger word, but it literally reflects also all those sacrifices. Every one of those sacrifices that were made on the Old Testament, they were dead, true enough, but after their throats being slit, they were set on fire so that they could be totally consumed. Every part of that animal had to be consumed upon that altar. What does this imply? Friends, it implies as it did then when he says, present yourselves a living sacrifice. He's saying, you have to give me all of yourself. You realize that every desire I have, every will, every want, every thought that I could ever have about myself and what I want to accomplish in this life, although it be good and many times those things be according to God's will, I don't argue that, but everything I will to do in life has to come behind what God wills for me to do. Honestly. You know, there are individuals, I know, in the community of Weaver, I couldn't name a name, but, but I know there are individuals, perhaps, that are living right here in the little town of Weaver who are members of the Lord's Church and even maybe who have at one time been active participants in with this congregation, and they're not here. Why? Because their will this morning was different than yours. Maybe they rose up this morning and said, well, I, I, I will to do this, or I will to go and do that, or I just will to stay in the bed. Friends, God's will is not any of those. Not the will of God. There has to be a consummation. Now, I mentioned before under this Old Testament offering heading that when the priest would lay up an animal on that altar to be sacrificed, that they would use two flesh hooks. Literally two large hooks would be drawn from the sides of that altar that would take hold of that meat and hold that meat to the altar so that when they're performing the task, that they had to in order to sacrifices so that the meat itself would not slide off. The same is the case with us. These two flesh hooks represented to us devotion and at the same time they represented to us discipline. When I discipline my mind to doing God's will ahead of mine and I am then devoted to the doing or performing of God's will, then I'm consumed. Friends, we need to understand that I have to remind myself often, really I do, that I have to be totally consumed with doing God's will. Now, His will will include many things. His will may include me getting up and going to work every day. His will may include me getting and going to school or, or studying this or reading that, whatever it is, but at the same time, it has to be His will and His will first. So first of all, Far before I get to discovering my spiritual gift, which we all have, we only have to find it, I have to have a sacrificial presentation. I have to have that. But not only that, keep reading there, verse 2. Verse 2 adds, and we're familiar with these verses, it says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Friends, in behind, the beginning part of this, in behind, if you will, that sacrificial presentation, there also has to be 
a spiritual transformation. That's not hard to find this point either. It's right there in the text. He says, be not conformed. That word literally means put in the mold of. Be not conformed unto this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is God requiring of us? Friends, in the context, God is requiring of us that there be a spiritual transformation. Now, this comes in basically two forms. Number one, there has to be a transformation, or a shorter word, a change of the man. When I say man, I mean generically mankind, man or woman. But there has to be a change of the man. Whoever I am or whoever you are or whoever you were at one point in time has to be, when you obey the gospel, changed or transformed into the man of Christ. Who lives inside of your body? Who lives inside of my body? Well, you say, well, in your body, it would be someone named Jim Merle, wouldn't it? Well, in a sense, it is. In many ways, I'm still who I am and who I always will be. But in another very real sense, for a Christian, I must be Christ. I'm no one's Savior. I'm no one's Messiah. I'm not implying that I'm Jesus in that sense. But at the same time, Christ dwells, and the Bible tells us this on several different occasions, he dwells in me as a child of his. There has to be a change or a transformation of the man, but that only comes, he says it, he says, be it transformed, how is that? By or through the means of the renewing of your mind. See, there's a change in the man, and then there must be a change in the mind. You know, when I go into, or you went into the watery grave, as we call it, the baptism, we rose up to walk, as the Bible tells us, Romans 6, in newness of life. We rose up then to live for Christ and for His cause, but at the same time, we had to begin. And this is a process. This is something that we do not all do instantaneously. We ought to start working in that direction. But not instantaneously, but we ought to change our mind. If you write in your Bibles, and I don't encourage you to try to spell this, but just remember this. When you see the word transformed, as the King James translation uses, you're looking at the Greek word that is metamorpho. You say, I don't know what in the world that means. I don't hardly either. But the word metamorpho is where we get our English word metamorphosis. And I can remember as a child, and Cameron's already been through this. He's smarter than I ever was, I guess. I was maybe in the third grade when I discovered that at some point in time, in the springtime often, that a caterpillar that was crawling around on my mother's porch would enter into a cocoon of sorts and would come out just a few days or weeks later as a beautiful butterfly. I learned in school, long about the third or fourth grade, that that was because of metamorphosis. Literally, it was transformed. Now, the word metamorphosis, the Greek word metamorpho here, is a word that literally means to bring the insides out. That's all it means. The truth is that inside of that caterpillar, all the while, as it wiggles and waggles down your sidewalk, there's already a butterfly. That's the truth. It doesn't look the way, same way it does. It doesn't even act the same way it crawls. It doesn't fly. It's somewhat different, but it's already there. 
Friends, what the Bible is saying here, when Paul pins the words for God, he says, be not conformed. Don't be put in the mold of the world. But he says, be you transformed. Let what is inside you, which is the man Christ, come out. That's only taking me and leading me toward discovering my spiritual gift. But it's a part of it. I've heard people say before, well, you know, when it comes to that, I have, to, I have to think about that. I have to put my mind in that. I have to wrap my mind around that. And that's difficult. It, it can and will be. And I think sometimes for the betterment of us, it, it often should be difficult. But changing or transforming the man, changing or transforming the mind. Thirdly here, we're just moving down forward, verses 6, 7, and 8. Not only do we see that there must be, there must be a sacrificial presentation. There must be, in this sense, a spiritual transformation. Verse 3, he brings us to really think when he says there also must be a sobering consideration. A sobering consideration. Notice what it said here, verse 3. He says, for I say... Through the grace that is given unto me to every man among you, watch what he warns us against, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according to he hath dealt unto every man a measure of faith. What's God saying here through Paul's pen? He's saying that it is possible that mankind can think about himself wrongly. Now, the context we hadn't even got to is going to tell us about spiritual gifts that we have access and ability to use. That's the context. Now what if a man, for example, gets in this and he begins to think of himself and say, you know what, I am rather gifted. Spiritually, I'm gifted. We ought to say that we are. But he gets somewhat braggadocious about that. He begins to wrap his mind around that. Paul warns us here and says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Don't let this thing run away with you. What's he saying? There are basically two things he's warning against. One thing that he's encouraging. The first thing he seemingly warns against is what I would call a sinful exaggeration. You know, it would be easy for me to say, as I take time every day, every week, and I study God's Word, particularly for me, I prepare classes, Bible classes and sermons and such, and I prepare to present those things to audiences like us, it would be easier for me to say, you know what, I have taken enough time in my life to develop a gift that I, I pray that I have, and because of that, I'm just, I've really arrived. I could say, and I'm not, I could say, boy, I'm a good preacher. I'm a good Bible class teacher. I don't know that I am. But I could say that, and that would be sinful exaggeration. That's what he says. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But what happens? What I see more times than not is not the problem with a sinful exaggeration. It is a problem of a false humiliation. I have not taken the time to ask any of you. I, I didn't plan to, don't plan to. But if I came to someone who is a child of God, and without any explanation, I just came up and said, do you have a gift? Are you spiritually gifted in some area for the cause of Christ? You might say, many do. Oh, not me. No, no, I, I don't have any particular gifts. Were you good at this? 
well, I do that, and I don't mind, and it's for God, but I'm not gifted. And I mentioned a moment ago my mother and her ability to cook. If you ask her if she can cook, she just throws stuff together. She doesn't brag about that. That's no problem for her and in that area. But the problem arrives when a child of God, every child is gifted, when a child of God gets so humilified that they begin to say, oh, I don't have any gifts. Liar. Again, the Bible said there in verse 6 that we have not even covered really yet having gifts differing. The last word was us. We have gifts. Every child of God has some sort, some type, some area in which they are gifted, spiritually speaking. And to try to be so humble, to try to be filled with such humility as to say with our mouths, at least, oh, I don't have a gift, is really to say God hasn't given me one, which in essence is basically to rebel against God. God said, I give gifts to my children. We say, oh, I don't have one. Then we're implying that somehow we're a child, but we don't have any gifts. It's not right. Know what he does here. He warns against a sinful exaggeration. He warns against, if you will, a false humiliation because he wants us to have a sober estimation. Now, the word sober there, we read across it, he says that every man might think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't do that. That he ought to think, watch it, soberly. We understand the word sobriety when it comes to alcohol and, and the lack sometimes of sobriety that some have because of that. What does it mean to be sober? The word sober here literally literally carries with the idea of being right or settled in mind. Means that nothing has gotten in the way and caused the mind to go here or to wane over that direction. Settled in mind. Right minded. It's all God wants. But then again, someone says, well, on the one extreme, I'm very gifted. I have all the spiritual gifts. Don't exaggerate Someone says, oh, well, I, I'm really not gifted in any one area. You're saying that I am, but and, and maybe the Bible tries to say that, but you don't know me. Don't bring a false humility either. What does it mean, then, to be sober-minded? And by the way, we can answer the question now, how am I going to find that about myself? Friends, there are several ways to discover the spiritual gifts we're about to approach. One, you could begin with what I would call, these are all words that begin with the letter E for my memory, but you need to think about the enlightenment principle. What I mean by enlightenment is if, I, if I'm not sure what my gift is, I need to be enlightened through the reading and studying of God's Word to find it. I've already mentioned there are gifts here. There are mentions, uh, also gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we have access to. Now, they're not miraculous as some of them were in the first century. They're not that. They're practical. They're the things that God allows us to have that He gives us as His children. But enlightenment, opening my mind to have myself to be enlightened by the Word of God. That's one way. Second, there, there's going to be some level of enjoyment. Think about what you have done in the past, what you could do for the Lord that you would enjoy. There'll be enjoyment when I find or discover my spiritual gift. Thirdly, there'll sometimes be encouragement. When a gift is found, when it's located, when it's tried for the first time, there's often time, and there always is, I would assume, 
going to be someone in the church that's going to encourage you in that. I've been preaching for a little bit over a decade. And I've still got cassette tapes and I've still got sermon outlines and things that I prepared back 10, 12 years ago that I preached. And I've sat down and listened to some of those tapes. I pulled some of those sermon outlines off of my computer and looked at them and thought to myself, what in the world? That was awful. You say, well, this is awful. Maybe, but that was awful. But I can also remember those people who, even when it was awful, said, thank you. I appreciate that. Encouragement. When I think about a sober estimation, it will include enlightenment. See what God's word says. What's available? What, what can I do? I think about enjoyment. What do I enjoy doing? What do I like? I think about those who encourage me. But then finally, and don't leave this one out, there is enablement. Because the same individuals, and I've been there and done that, who say, oh, I don't have a gift. I'm not gifted in any areas, particularly, oh, they are. And they say, well, I can't, though. I, I don't know. You want me to teach, and I'm not a good teacher. And you want me to preach, and I'm not a good preacher. And you want me to do this or this and so. And I'm not enablement. Turn with me, if you would, only one time. We're going to move over to the book of 1 Timothy for just a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 1, I want you to notice with me. And, of course, this is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, speaking about himself. Notice how the Apostle Paul became a preacher or minister, and that was his gift. It's obvious it was his gift. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, watch the next phrase, who hath enabled me to do what, Paul? For he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Verse 13, he goes back and says, Who I, speaking of himself, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, injurious, but I obtained mercy... Because I did it ignorantly and of unbelief. Now the preceding verse, verse 11, spoke of the glorious gospel that allowed all sad. What's it wrap up in there? From verses 11, 12 to 13 is all pushed together to say God enabled me. Therefore, if I have a gift, and I do, and you do also, the only way that gift is going to be able to work is if God enables it in me. Next. Not only must there be a sacrificial presentation leading to a gift, must there be a spiritual transformation, a sober consideration. There has to be, and it's the purpose of the gift to begin with, there also has to be a shared participation. Notice with me verses 4 and 5. He says, For as we have many members in one body, we're all members and not of the same office. Well, he's already spoke of the differing gifts that we mentioned in verse 6 that we're coming to. He says in verse 5, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. What's he saying there? He's saying there that as he's about to mention these seven gifts that he chooses to list, that those seven gifts exist, but every one of them don't exist in every man. I don't have, you won't have, God doesn't expect us to have every spiritual gift. But here's what happens. When brother or sister so-and-so is gifted in this area, and another brother or sister is gifted in that area, and another one gifted in that area, before long you have all of those areas covered and they work together. 
You see, there must be a shared participation. Here's the thing. If I want to discover my spiritual gift, and supposing I do just what I need to do to find it, I study God's Word, I find it, I develop it, I, I commit to doing it, it won't mount to a hill of beans, as we say. It won't matter until I'm willing to share it. There may be someone here, and we'll just look down right quick at a gift. There's the gift of exhortation in verse 8. There may be someone here who is the greatest exhorter, uplifter that you have ever seen in your life. It won't matter if there's no one else here willing to minister, if there's no one else here willing to rule, if there's no one else here willing to have mercy, there's no one else here willing to do the others. But all together they work. All of that was saying, really, to tell us how to get to this point. Not only is there the sacrificial presentation from verse 1, is there in turn the spiritual transformation from verse 2? Is there the sober estimation that comes in there in verse 3 and the shared participation from verses 4 and 5? Now verse 6 through 8, there has to be, and we have to be careful, but there has to be, in addition to that, a specific activation. What I mean by that phrase is find the specific gift that I have, you have, and do something with it. And that's implied. Notice what they are. Just reading across in verse 6 beginning. He says, And having gifts differing according to the grace which is given unto us, whether it be number one here, prophecy, let him prophesy. We'll come back to that. And according to the portion of his faith, verse 7, or ministry, another one, let him minister. Wait on ministry. Or he that teacheth on teaching, that's number three. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation, number four. Or he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, that's number five. Or he that ruleth with all diligence, six. Or number seven, or he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Those are the seven gifts he lists. Now in that, I want us to understand there must be a specific activation. Number one, there has to be acceptance. And I've said this over and over again. I have to accept the fact I have a gift. What it is, I may not know or can tell at this point. But I have to accept it. God said it. The word having implies it. Having, therefore, gifts differing. Verse 6, period. Us, last word. Accept. But after the acceptance, there then has to be the assets. What are available? First one he mentioned here was prophecy. Now somebody says, well, wait a minute. None of us are prophets. Prophets of the Old Testament, they spoke prophetic things. They told about what God intended for man to have. And they did that miraculously. And that's true. That's certain. Uh, the apostles were prophets in that sense. They spoke on behalf of God when at that point there were no written words to read. It was only through the inspiration of God put into their minds. No doubt. But what does it really mean to prophesy? What is a prophet? Friends, it may have been miraculous at one point, but it does not imply it cannot exist today. To be a prophet is simply to declare truth. That's all. That's all that it is. You say, well, that's future telling. No, it wasn't always even future tense. It was people talking about what truth is. There has to be someone among us, myself, yourself, whoever it is, consider ourselves, who have the ability to declare truth. 
Now, somebody says, well, I don't know that I can do that. Well, it's interesting that when he describes it, he's careful, God is, and says, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. What he means by that is everybody's got some truth to declare. Everybody. Somebody's portion may be larger than others because their biblical knowledge may be larger than others, but they have a portion of faith to declare. So to prophesy, that is declared truth. Then the next one he mentions there, or ministry. Word ministry or minister or something like that is often abused. I can show you a congregation who has a potty training ministry. I don't know what in the world that has to do with spreading the gospel whatsoever, but they have it. So they say, this is not that loose. But the word ministry here means to wait on. He actually describes it. He says, let us wait on our ministry. The Greek language almost says, let us minister so we can minister and minister. Because the word wait means to minister. What does that mean for us? Friends, there are those who have the ability to do service that meet specific spiritual needs of others. That's all. We may minister in that we give away a box of food or write a check or give cash to someone who's in need. But unless we minister to them spiritually also, we've done that. What is your gift? Is it the gift of prophecy? Is it the gift of ministry? Is it the gift, verse 8, of exhortation? What does that mean? I've already mentioned it means to lift up, but more literally than that, it means the desire to stimulate others. I thank God for these. We all need any day when we're down and out of whatever it is, even spiritually, if there's someone there to exhort us or to lift us up, oh, what a difference that can make. Someone who can pat us on the back. Someone who can encourage us to do better and do more. Maybe they may be your gifted in that way. Very quickly, he makes mention of those who give. He says, and he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. The idea of simplicity there is similar to what Paul told the Corinthians uh, 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, that man is not to give grudgingly or of necessity, that God loves a cheerful giver. Almost a parallel thought. Because he says, just, just simply do it. Some people have the ability to give. You say, well, they have the means to give. Not everyone has the means who is a giver. The widow and her two mites, she had no means really, but she gave. Jesus said she even gave more than them all. The words there mean she gave more than all them collectively. Put together all the rich men that came by. Maybe that's our gift. Then he mentions the gift of ruling. And he says that this person who ruleth, he ruleth with diligence. The implication there is that this is one. He doesn't rule with an iron fist. He doesn't say you do this and you do that. It's someone who coordinates. Someone who takes charge. Friends, any thriving congregation has someone who ruleth. Has someone, and that's not always in this case. He's not talking about an eldership here. He's just saying there's someone among you that has the ability, they just need to develop it, to coordinate things, to get things moving, to keep them going. And then finally, he mentions the one about mercy. And he says here that they have mercy with cheerfulness. This is that this is just what they enjoy doing. The idea of mercy here is the idea of comforting those who are in distress. Friends, these gifts, these gifts exist among us. They exist among every group of people who call themselves a congregation sometimes amongst the Lord's people. Somewhere. Perhaps in multiples. 
somewhere in the room in which we sit and stand this morning, there is someone who has the ability or gift to prophesy. There's someone who has the ability or gift of ministry. There's someone who has the ability or gift of teaching or of exhortation or giving or ruling or mercy somewhere. Question is, is it, is it I? Is it you? Because I have to understand that's what God desires. That's what the church needs. There has to be within this then the acceptance. Yes, I have a gift. There has to be the assets, what are available, and then there has to be the actions. What will I do with my gifts? You know, any congregation that is at times, and, and, and we rotate, every congregation rotates in this means, they find places where they seem to be lull or lax, where they seem to be stagnant or standing still. It's only because, only because at some point somebody, someone has failed to use their gift. Their gift given unto them by God. Could it be that they know about it, they're aware of it, but they won't use it? Yes, but it could also be they just don't know. The word ignorance is not a bad term. It means unlearned. They're ignorant, therefore, of the gift that God has given. How would they discover it? Do it as the same we've said. Begin with that sacrificial presentation. Give yourself to God today. Through prayer, repentance, if you're a child of God, you can come home. You can present yourself a living sacrifice all over again. But if you're not a child of God's, then you have to begin at yet a different point. You have to begin by hearing God's word, believing on it, repenting of your sins, confessing his name, being baptized. That's the sacrificial presentation, at least the beginning of it. And then be willing to come to a spiritual transformation. My mind... And the man of God within me needs to be renewed right now, every moment. Which moves me on, as we mentioned, to that sobering consideration. Willing to be able to, sh to share that participation, but only because, only because I'm prepared for that specific activation of that gift. Friends, I stand here this morning amongst the most gifted people of all the world. I stand here this morning in some area, and I'm not even proclaiming what it may be, but I'm gifted because I'm a child of God. And so are you. You're here this morning for whatever reason. You've either not activated that through obedience or you've not accepted that through the use of it. Won't you come while together we stand as we sing?